My Mother, The Person and the Patient is an original podcast written and hosted by me, Fortuna Kuso. This podcast is about my mother, Timira Abdesamid Muhammad, Ayeya we call her. That's grandmother in Somali, and her great-grandchildren call her Ayeya too, and that is their way of saying great-grandmother. It was late 2014, early 2015, that my mother began to struggle in her abilities to get in and out of places. For example, to get into the bathtub and get out of it, and to get to sit down and get off the toilet. Those became really difficult. And she really had no reason to struggle with those because she was really fit and mobile at the time, but it was as though any time she wanted to get into the shower, she didn't know which foot to lift first. And the after, it's almost kind of like she would get momentary struggle where she doesn't know how to move. She stands by the shower and waits there. And when she moves, she almost wobbles and close to falling. Same thing with the toilet. So she sits down and sometimes she would call me because she doesn't really remember or doesn't know how to really move her, her body up. So I contacted the CCAC, um, now present day Lynn, and I asked if I could speak to um, the caseworker. The reason I wanted to call was twofold. The one of them was because I didn't really know what I needed. I didn't know what was out there for me to get to support my mother. And also I wanted to see if there are funds available under the long-term care where I could access to get those uh, for my mother. So the caseworker came, she did assessment around the house, my mother's bedroom, the bathroom, the distance she's walking. She had my mother do some movement. We had occupational therapists come in and do the assessment. And then she said, okay, how about if I set you up with um with a pharmacy that could deliver a seed that could rise the toilet like make the toilet higher it's probably a little bit too low for her and then put on the sides uh, two bars that sit on so the two bars would sit around the existing toilet seat and then you will have this extender that rises the toilet that sits on top of it. it's a plastic thing and it sits on top of it and then my mother would sit there so it was it would be easier when she gets up if i show her a couple times she will hold on to the sidebars and lift her body up like that and then she said when it comes to the shower we could put a bench it's almost like a um, a chair on the side so she's going to sit on there swing her both her uh, legs into the into the top and gradually move in uh, she doesn't have to worry about remembering what food goes in first so in the shower head she said i could not help you that but what you can do is you can get one of those like um shower heads that you can lift from the head and and you can hold it like a wand so i went home depot picked up a shower head like that took the stationary one off and then i put in where my mother could just take it down and sit down and she could take her shower seated the following day, so somebody came from the pharmacy chain. The man walked into the bathroom, set up the shower bench, showed me how to take it, 
take it out if I need to uh, clean the, the top. Same thing with the toilet. He installed it. He showed me, he said, if it becomes loose and you notice it wobbling a little bit like this, go here, tighten it. Those three pieces put together made my mother's uh, bathroom usage, both shower and the otherwise really really easy and manageable and I was comfortable and once I did it with her three four times she seemed to be able to do it even if she got up um, in in the middle of the night to use the toilet it uh, became automatic four weeks after I got the items delivered I got a, a call from the chain somebody calling on behalf of the chain and they said CCAC only paid these equipments first month so you have one of two options. A, you can continue to rent them. Seat extender was $45 a month and shower bench was um, $55. So they said you could rent both items for $100 a month or you could buy them out. $100 every month to rent those pieces kind of like sounded too much to me. So I said, how much is it to buy it out? So they said to buy it out. Toilet extender and the bars is $90. Um, and to buy the shower bench, like $120. I said, okay, here's my credit card. I want to buy both items. I ended up paying a little bit over $200 to keep the items as long as they were of use to my mother. And when they weren't of use to my mother anymore, I was able to donate the bars and the shower bench to the Goodwill. And it cost me a little bit over $200. That was a lot of money out of my pocket at the time. But imagine I used those items for three, four years after I bought them. So imagine if I was renting and spending $100 every month, one year would have cost me $1,200 right? And I paid $200. I realized later on, I could have bought all those items in any big box store that sold home goods or um, construction goods, half what I paid to the, um, to the pharmacy chain. But still, I was happy in where I ended up because I was able to pay a little bit over $200, which was a hit right off the bat. But it was huge saving as the time went on and I used those items. So if you are at the beginning of stages of a loved one living with Alzheimer's, it's always a good idea, A, to know what any agency, CCAC or LEN or whatever agency you're dealing with, what is the offer to read every word in whatever documents you get and know what it is that's expected. And if you are getting one month rental, it's always a good idea to look around and shop around for that month, to use that month to organize yourself. When you listen to how we arrived at my mother's diagnosis and what followed, it's so easy to see her just as the patient, to see her as nothing more than the disease that reduced her to shell of her old self. But I want to also to tell you about my mother, the person, the fierce woman that told her stories unapologetically, celebrating the beautiful parts and harsh realities equally. I want to share with you the stories she told us about her life as a girl growing up 
in a small village. The tales that marked her adulthood, I want to share with you all her losses and the ultimate winnings. The following is one of those stories reconstructed from my childhood memory. The two weeks between the verdict and the day of the execution, Timira and her brother went with her father to the market in search of work. It's time to go. Timira knew her father didn't want to take them to the market as much as he didn't want to leave them in the empty camp. You have to eat something. He handed Timira and her brother each piece of flat bread, more lumpy than flat, which Timira had helped him make the night before, and each a hard-boiled egg, still warm to the touch. I want tea, Farah said. We're out. Timira's father didn't elaborate on his answer. He and Farah were a father and a son like that. We'll buy some on our way back, Timira said. Timira was aware that they already used up the few shillings her father had earned before the loss and whatever he'd brought with him from the village. Farah and Timira walked through the market aimlessly as their father carried sacks of corn, beans, maize, and flour for customers on his back. It didn't weigh much and the effort left him exhausted. Timira felt sorry for her father because there was no wife waiting for him with warm water and hot oil to massage his aching feet. She tried her best to help him by starting the fire while he prayed. They cooked or tried to cook together each night something as simple as part of corn and red beans boiled in water, a piece of meat if they could afford it, a handful of vegetables, a thermos of tea. They didn't speak to each other during the meal and crawled to bed soon after the evening prayer. Timira counted and recounted the days of the two weeks they needed to wait. She'd write the date with a stick on the soft ground each morning even though she had done the same thing the previous day. Still, she couldn't wait for the two weeks to end for the reckoning Friday. The date is scheduled for their execution to come for two reasons. First, she wanted to look into that mother and her son's four evil eyes as they took their last breath. To see the fear in their faces like her brother must have exhibited before they'd killed him would be precious. As loud as she could, she would ask them how it feels to know death is coming for them and there is nothing they can do about it. It was fitting that their family lost a mother and a son just like Timira's family had. For her second reason, one more important than the first, her family would be leaving this dreadful city. Her father had promised they'd leave the camp the following Saturday, escape from all the horror that the city dealt them. Timira didn't sleep the Thursday night before the Friday for fear of not waking up early enough to be there. She got out of bed undressed well before the sound of the morning prayer from the city masjid reached her ears. She lit a fire. I made tea and eggs. She brought the steaming kettle into the room. We have to go soon. It's not until ten her father said we have time. I want to get there before anyone else. 
They left the camp a little after eight o'clock in the morning, but the soccer field converted into an execution range was filled with people when they arrived. It wasn't even nine yet. When did all these people get here? Timira asked. That's why this city is filled with so much evil, her father said. People are coming this early to see an execution as if they were going to a festival. Someone must have seen the family because the crowd parted as soon as Timiro, her brother, and her father approached the field, making the Red Sea an easy and unfettered passage. Within seconds, they were at the front of the line. It didn't rain for the last two days, so Timiro sat on the ground, pulled Farah into her lap, and wrapped her arms around his chest. Most days, it was hard to know what Farah was thinking or feeling, even before the loss. According to her mother, he was as quiet as Timiro was a talking machine. Farah was comfortable in his own company, but he grew quieter after Isaac's death even more so after their mother's departure. He was using his words when he had to, but he'd cried when the officer spoke about what happened to Isaac. Timiro was ready to hold him close this time, so he wouldn't flail as he'd done at the time of sentencing. Timiro's legs tingled, but she didn't want to ask Farah to get up. Two men led the woman and her son out of the truck with their hands and feet bound together with a thick rope. Their heads were covered with a burlap sack. Timira forgot her resolve to hold Farah. She pushed him off and stood up to get a good look. She wanted her eyes to be the first set they saw when their head cover was removed. That was her way of paying them for what her brother saw before he died. The entire process was slow, and Timiro relished that. Every minute it lasted was another minute they knew what was coming. Death at their door, and they had no power to shut the door against it. It was a fitting end to how her father felt when he couldn't fight them off. Just like Isaac must have been terrified his last moments. The fear that corroded their hearts must be extreme. They were tied in two poles about eight feet apart from each other. A man went up and removed the ropes from their hands and feet, but he didn't take their head covering off. Maybe he left the sacks sitting there while the imam from the city masjid went up to read their last rites. Perhaps the imam didn't want to see their bleeding eyes. They might even ask for mercy like they had done that day when the judge announced their punishment, death. They cried that day like babies, like Timira's brother must have cried. Timira was happy no one paid them attention. She waited for the sack to come off, to see their scared faces. It didn't. The firing squad arrived. Ten men, exact size in both height and weight, got out of the car. They wore green and black camouflage uniform. Their faces were covered with black helmets and face shields. It was impossible to tell one from the other. She didn't know why they needed so many to execute the two, but they deserved the sheer number of the assaults they faced. The 11th man, 
with the same precise appearance as the rest of the squad stepped out of the truck last. He had a megaphone. Take your positions, he shouted. The men moved with a machine-like exactness and took their places. Aim, the one with the megaphone said. Each of the ten spread their legs, trained their rifles on the two. They fired their guns at once, filling the air with a popping sound. As the bullets hit them, the two jumped up in the air as if they were ready to fly away from the fire. They landed back down with a hard landing. Their heads jolted back and forth before they slumped to the side. Abba, look, Timiro pointed at them, but it was all over when she looked back. The doctor went up, checked, and pronounced them dead. The crowd dispersed so quickly it was hard to know anyone was there. It was mere minutes, anticlimactic to all the built-up expectations in Timiro's mind. She stood there, stunned as the bodies were removed and put in the same truck. They died, then what? Her father had said when the sentence was announced. Indeed. My mother, the person and the patient, can be found in all your podcast streaming apps or head to my website, fortumacuso.com, to listen to the entire season. Please do not forget to listen, like, share, and follow. And join me next week as I share with you another episode of my mother's journey as both the person and the patient. Thank you.